No one is born with a mindfulness practice. It takes time to discover your needs, to personalize your practice, and to cultivate that practice as you evolve as a mindful person. Dr. Seema Porton is a skilled urologic cancer surgeon and incorporates mindfulness into her everyday routine. Both her surgical skills and her mindfulness practice developed over an extended period of time and minor adjustments are continually required to reach the expert levels at which she performs. In this episode of Operate with Zen, we talk about developing and refining a mindfulness practice as a surgeon, how to incorporate those skills into the operating room, clinical care, and our home lives. Dr. Porton also recently completed a clinical trial investigating the impact of mindfulness on perioperative outcomes for patients undergoing a major cancer operation. Her balance and positive attitude are an inspiration to all who know her and hopefully to all who listen to this episode. My name is Phil Parazio, and I'm a urologic oncologist, a surgeon. Like many of you, I absolutely love what I do, and I would not choose another profession. But I've struggled with professional identity, practice efficiency, and wellness over the years. Operate with Zen is a podcast designed to explore a mindful approach to surgery and to being a surgeon. By discussing these struggles and mindful solutions, I hope together we can create a community of strong and healthy surgeons. Enjoy. Welcome to Operate with Zen. Today, I have the great pleasure of being joined by Dr. Seema Porton. Seema, introduce yourself to the audience. Hi, my name is Seema Porton. I am an associate professor uh, at UCSF, and I'm a urologic oncologist. I primarily specialized in treating patients with urothelial cancer. Um, I'm a mom of two awesome kids. Uh, what else about me? I like to dance. <laughs> so I, I used to be a dancer. I'm retired now. <laughs> and um, I'm really happy to be here uh, with you today. Well, thanks, Seema. Uh, Seema and I have become uh, really good friends, uh, I would say, over the last few years through the oncology circles. But now we've even started a tradition of meeting for yoga classes at meetings and spending some time together away from the meeting to kind of work on our mindful approach to life and and being urologic oncologist. So it's one of our, our newer connections. Yes. And it's been, it's been really fun. And anybody listening, if you ever want to join us, uh, shoot either of us a text <laughs> or, a or a, a DM is that my, my residents correct yeah. my lingo all the time. Um, and we'd be happy to have you join us anytime. Absolutely. And we're even batting around the idea of starting kind of uh, an open call yoga class at one of these meetings where we can bring some instructors in for people who are a little nervous about going to a studio or doing that. We'll try and maybe we can bring it to them. Yeah. <laughs> well, good. well, both of us um, bring mindfulness into our lives and into our practice. And just wanted to start with you, Seema. Tell us, how does mindfulness fit into your life and, and practice as a urologist? Yeah, so it, it didn't always. Um, so growing up, um, also, I was first generation uh, Indian. Uh, my parents sent me to what we used to call Indian school, which is basically um, like a, a learning about Hinduism as a religion. And you had to go every Saturday for like four hours. And it was really not 
anything my brother and I looked forward to um, because part of it was like this enforced meditation that they would try to teach you. But, you know, as a kid, it's really hard um, to sort of get that concept of trying to be still and be like Zen or however you want to put it, right? It doesn't really, it, uh, it doesn't sort of jive with kind of how life is going, at least at that time. And so either I'd fall asleep or I would be very incredibly bored. And, and so it, <clears throat> in, from that experience, I more was the one that if you're moving and shaking, you're moving forward, right? So you're, I'm also, I tend to have a lot of energy anyway. So I like to do that. And that is my tendency. And so you kind of um, push at things and put in full effort and you're really busy and then you see success and then you just keep going and you keep going and going and going. But it's fine when the, um, the asks of you are small because you're a kid, right? But as you move through life, if you keep going that way, um, your life gets busier and busier and they ask it more and more. And um, you keep hustling and hustling and hustling. And then all of a sudden you end up thinking, what happened? <laughs> like, what, what happened today? I actually don't know. <laughs> I can't remember who I talked to. I don't know what I did. And I don't know if anything that was done that day had any purpose. And so I think it was um, through kind of that learning experience and particularly uh, in residency and then becoming a parent in residency where, where that becomes just a lot more um, in your face, right? And so it was around that time that I started thinking about, well, I don't want to keep hustling through everything and not and miss all the good stuff. I think even at work, at home, in doing the things that I thought were fun, it became a lot about like, you know, when you're an intern and you make the checklist, just checking off all of the list. At the end of the day, the list was done. So that was good. But again, like, could I get you a memory or a feeling of the day? No, probably could not. And, 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 and I think becoming a parent sort of made it very, um, real to me that that's not really how I wanted to go about life. And so that's when um, my version of mindfulness kind of uh, ended up um, coming into being, uh, not super formally, and I don't think I had an, uh, a term for it. But for me, it started with trying to be more present, right? And so when when you talk about mindfulness, I think one of my favorite um, um, <clears throat> interpretations or explanations of it is it's making a conscious choice about responding to things around you, even when that is beyond your control. So you can't control how many times you get paged. You can't control um, people, your your kids repetitively saying mommy or daddy or whatever. You you There's a lot in your life you can't control, but you can control um, your thoughts around it and how you respond to it, right? So... If your family member, friend, child is sort of asking for your attention, you you can control how you focus that attention on them and you enjoy that moment because you've chosen to be there for it. You can control how present you are when you talk to a patient and you try to form a connection. The operating room is probably one of the greatest places for mindfulness because you, you only have one goal, right? Take care of the patient. Um, so 
you can take all of those thoughts of the grocery risk running through your head of some annoying interaction you had earlier in the day from X, Y, and Z, and this, this thing happening here and that thing happening there, you can control and ignore it because you do have only one goal or focus, maybe two, if you have a resident in the operating room and, and you're trying to, you're teaching them. Um, and so from that, I think that probably is my best analogy in terms of um, how you can think about mindfulness and how it can be really important in creating a really happy life where at the end of the day, you could easily tell yourself the like five awesome memories and things that you've enjoyed. Right. And that's the other important part of it is that you got to try to do it every day. Practice anything that you want to be good at. You got to, you got to build as a routine and practice. Um, It's got to have some kind of um, positivity to it. Life is not all sunshine and flowers, but there are always rainbows (laughs) after the rain. You can always find something. Um, to be grateful for, appreciate. And um, you, your thoughts, the stories you tell yourself, I guess like the fancy word is thought distortions or negative kind of things. Um, You do have the control to figure out where that comes from and how to change it. Um, And that's how you can kind of move through life in a very intentional way and like have a lot of joy and not feel like you're always giving something up to do something else. And I think that's probably the biggest thing I try to teach residents because probably one of the biggest questions I get um, is how do you balance your time, which I think is also the most nonsense way of thinking of life. (laughs) Yeah. Wow, I um I love twenty seven things you said, but we got to start um, somewhere there. Um, one of the first things you said is you you didn't start in a mindful practice, and you didn't even necessarily start intentionally mindful. And I think a, a lot of us now who incorporate mindfulness into our daily lives realize we were doing things that were mindful over the years and being more thoughtful about it has not only teaches you new things, but it affirms some of the things that you were doing well. So, um, so for kind of people who are new to this concept or trying to think about ways to incorporate mindfulness into their life, what are some of the things they, you think they may be doing well now and and some of the ways they can improve to make those little steps, to make those little routines, uh, that you may have seen in your practice. So I would say the first is sort of looking at, um, being really honest with yourself and know what kind of person you are, right? I will I don't think I'm ever going to be capable of just sitting there and quote being mindful. Um, I need to have some sort of uh, physical activity to to be able to do that. Right. So yoga is great. I like it because you're moving, but yet um, it's not to the intensity that sometimes I think Peloton is that where all I can think of is just breathe. So you don't pass out and fall off this bike. Right. Um, It, it, there's enough of um, a challenge, but I'm better able to uh, concentrate, I think. So I need some sort of movement or activity. Um, It's partially why I 
why I think the operating room is great because you you're doing a, a task that you've practiced a lot and you need some focus and there is some activity and moving around. I actually probably get distracted the most during robotic cases. And so I've small thing I've done is move my phone away from the console. <laughs> so I could, I could uh, be a lot more focused and mindful because um, that the phone is an incredible distractor for me. Um, and so it's partially why I enjoy open surgery so much. I can, I can like walk around and wander and, you know, interact with the uh, resident or fellow. So that's why I like it. Um, and so I think understanding yourself and, um, what you, what you need to sort of be present is important. So for me, I need some activity that is not too intense and not too boring, basically, <laughs> is, yeah. is, is my, my like happy spot on where I can pick a time to, to um, be really intentional and be present. And so with the kids, it's usually like I like playing board games or doing something outside. Um, always have to put my phone away because again, for me, that's my like, um, that's my kryptonite right? That it will distract me. And so it's accepting that and knowing that and then like uh, doing the things I need to do to make myself successful. So those are things that I know about myself. There are some folks who to have um, a, a mindful practice, it's the morning time in the quiet, and they really need that stillness um, to think about things in the morning and the evening. That will never be me. And, and, and so I think from that aspect, those are some things you can look at and make small changes toward. I would say if you just start with the trying to be present. Um, so when you're at work, try to be as present as you can. When you're teaching a resident, same thing. Um, when you're at home with your kids, same thing. Um, and so if you start with those strategies, um, I think the rest kind of comes naturally and then you get interested in it. So you read more about it on, well, what are some other things I can do? And then you can kind of build on that. I think most people do that um, to some degree. And, and the hardest part I think for folks is to, to make that choice because I think we're um, conditioned to try to multitask. And so it's about trying to break yourself away from that habit. Yeah, it's really great advice just to kind of, um, you know, give little summaries. So first of all, multitasking is a complete misnomer. There's actually scientifically proven about 2% of the population can actually effectively multitask. So even if you think you can, you're probably not in that 2%. Very few people can actually do th- do multiple things at once. We're often rapidly serial tasking. And because we're highly productive physicians and professionals, because we've done so well for so long, we can do that effectively, but that's not really being present. And it's incredibly inefficient rather than just devoting five or 10 minutes to a simple task. We'll spread it out over the course of two hours because we're doing seven other things. So um, that, that's a great piece of advice. I love your, your advice about boundaries, right? And knowing who you are. So for you, a big boundary is the cell phone right? That's a really uh, big one. I am, um, I would tell you at home, I'm less cell phone dependent. I, I kind of unplug immediately once I get home, but you're right in the operating room, huge distraction for me. So um, I'm going to take your advice and get my cell phone away from myself uh, in robotic cases. I think it may help me be a better teacher. 
I think that's really important. And I really like how you said, um, not only knowing yourself so you can pick out kind of your mindfulness strategies, but there's, there are lots of mindfulness strategies, right? I mean, there's literally books full of them, but in the simplest forms, there's kind of uh, passive mindfulness strategies where you kind of sit down and meditate and do these things, or there's active meaning during a walk or during exercise or during an operating room. Um, you know, people, uh, you know, it's a, one of the great analogies is people who do high intensity, active sports, uh, mountain climbing, you know, anything that's risky or life threatening, they're doing it to get in a state of presence where they're solely focused on not dying while they're climbing that mountain or that cliff or whatever they may be doing that they're, they're totally focused and present in the moment. So there are ways to passively engage mindfulness and ways to actively engage mindfulness. And you got to find the, the right balance. And, and I think some, um, some of it's just having a couple tools just based on how you're kind of doing that day. Right. Um, sometimes like you're just over it, you're tired. So that's, that's when I will, um, uh, do a more of a listening thing. So it's termed guided imagery, right? So it's someone talking at you. Um, and you just got to find the person that doesn't annoy you in that aspect, right? Because there's a bunch of them out there and some of them are incredibly like I'm I'm all into this and I I'm not okay with whatever whatever's going on. And but I, I do have some go-tos that you can um sort of listen to to get you in the right mindset. You know, a lot of people do this naturally when they play their favorite music. Right. The music that makes them happy. Um that's actually can be a guided imagery strategy in a way, not technically, but it, it, it's a way of knowing how to regulate how you are feeling and knowing that you can change that, right? I tell my kids that all the time. I was like, you do not seem to be in a good place. You need to take some, some time. Go do something that you know will make you happy. Well, then you get the point. Nothing makes me happy. Everything sucks. It's all terrible. The world's going to end. Nothing will make me happy except some completely off the wall, unattainable something that they'll come up with. Um, and so the, the, the thing is, is working through that, like that's from a kid's perspective, but from adult perspective, you can end up in that same place easily um, based on how hectic or busy or stressful a day is. Right. And so it's just having your key go-tos on how you get yourself out of that. And so for my daughter, it is um, music. Um, <clears throat> that's what kind of helps her. She sort of gets in her groove. She can fix her mindset and then kind of move onward. For my son, it's, it is athletic activity. So he just needs to get off the screen and go outside and then it will fix itself. And so, um, but everybody has a different one. If the the traditional guided imagery ones generally tend to have a theme or a point. And so from that aspect, we actually use that for patients in terms of uh, managing anxiety prior to like cancer surgery. And so this is where we did um, a, um, a clinical trial, randomizing patients to a guided imagery intervention um, compared to not and assessed their anxiety um, and this is only with two week kind of intervention, assess their anxiety, the, the right before surgery, the day prior to surgery, when someone was supposed to be the most anxious. And we had clinically significant reductions in anxiety. Um, 
the guided imagery recording that was provided to them was focused on, um, was set up for the things that make people anxious about having a big operation and particularly a cancer operation. So it was done for our cancer patients. And so it was about um, trusting your team, no matter what happens, even if it's hard, even if there's complications, it's about visualizing um, improvement in terms of um, your function or quality of life. It's about empowering patients to be strong enough, even if the outcomes aren't what they wanted. And it's also about um, visualizing your cancer being dealt with. And so those are the themes of this imagery. And so that's a very targeted thing, right? If you always tell, like, so for a patient, that's one very targeted guided imagery for like us as um, physicians or trainees or et cetera, you kind of have to know your, um, your downers, right? What those are. And then generally then you can seek out um, these targeted guided imagery things meant to bring you out of that kind of state. And so they have it a little bit, they have them in those little self-select things on like apps, like headspace and that about I'm based on how you feel, you kind of look for, a, um, I guess it's like an affirmation or, or a, a meditation to kind of help you move out of that space if you don't feel like you're in a place to be able to do it yourself. So I think there's a lot of these different strategies that can be used across the board. Yeah, really cool, Seema. And, um, you know, I'm totally on, on board. So, uh, but critics will say, right, people that are going to respond well to this are, it's because they, you know, it's because of who they are, because they like this and that not everyone is necessarily going to respond to these things. Now, I know you did a randomized, I know it's randomized, but kind of tell us your thoughts on that. And is this going to work for everybody? Does it require buy-in? You know, how much of this is, you know, kind of biophysical and how much is, is kind of um, voluntary? Yeah. So although, you know, we had that randomization, right. We did look at, um, the baseline characteristics of our population here in San Francisco, right? And so that's a limitation of our study that about um, 30% of patients, whether in both groups were um, knew what mindfulness practice was and had engaged in something that we classified as a mindful, mindful, mindfulness based practice in the past, right? Um, there were um, about 10 to 15% of patients on anti-anxiety medication already. Um, so it was, you, you see a little bit of um, difference in terms of demographics in the group. Um, not everybody who was randomized to it loved it. Some people said, well, it, it's okay, but really for me, it um, what I would choose is my church support group as my way of reducing anxiety. And, and when you ask them, well, why, why, why you choose that? Oh, well, they tell me the same things, but it's from a person that I actually respect and care about than some random who's talking at me over this recording you gave me. Right. And so I, I would say that um, even uh, with those criticisms, um, that they are completely valid, right? 
but that even folks who this was not their jam, essentially, right, in, in listening to this, they could provide you something else that could be used in lieu of it, if that makes sense, right? And so if you ask them, why did you hate it? Um, everybody came up with something very similar to to what the one patient story that I shared with you was. And I thought that was pretty powerful. Um, and this is the part where you start with, well, um, in the end, it's about being intentional and present. And there's not one right way to do it. Um, this is putting a lot of fancy words to tools that people have used for, for many, many, many ages, but that as society has changed and developed, um, we've kind of got more distant from a lot of those things that used to provide the same support, right? Community, um, uh, for some people it's religion, right? Um, and, um, so, and, and I think that's just a, a, this is a bigger thing, like a change in our society in general. And so I think that's why this has become so popular because not everybody can come up with something to replace this. Um, and so I think that, that, that is usually my response um, to that criticism because it's definitely fair. Uh, but I, I would say that if you have an open mind, there are parts of this that could speak to almost everybody. You just got to figure out what it is for that person. Yeah. I think it's a, a theme running through our conversation already is kind of, you know, being an individual and finding what, what works for you. But I just want to highlight two things that, that you said, um, you know, first about religion, you know, at its essence, the majority of religions and philosophical experiences are about being present. They're about being mindful and you get at it from a different tradition and from a different Way, and there's a different story, but in general, they're about being simplistic, about being minimalist and essential and, and really focusing on what's important in your life and being present. And I think that's an important thing to, to let people know that your religious faith is amazing. Let's run with that. And that will help, that will help give you strength and be mindful and present and do the things you need to do to kind of be successful. And um, the other thing I was going to point out is, you know, you're, you're, your study is founded in science. I mean, there's tons of science here that people don't appreciate about mindfulness and how it actually improves a number of measurable ob objective physiologic parameters, immune function, cellular inflammation, decreased pain, anxiety, depression, happy, overall happiness, and kind of uh, other scores. It, it improves memory, creativity, abstract thinking. These are things that are well documented in scientific literature, not just, not just soft sciences. Uh, this is, you know, well documented. And if there's anybody out there who's interested every once in a while, now that we have a YouTube channel, um, I'll hold up a book for people. Um, this is a great one. Altered traits for the, for the skeptics and the scientists out there. The authors are Daniel Goleman and, and uh, Richard Davidson. And it goes into the science of mindfulness and how, you can actually change. It shows you the science between cellular inflammation. It shows you the genetics and the epigenetics and how actually mindfulness can be passed on or, or the, the traits that come along with mindfulness can be passed on from generation to generation. 
just as people who have tough stress reactions can pass those on to their children. Those who are more mindful and present can pass those on to their children. And so you really can, can make tremendous benefits by, by doing this. Yeah, I, I agree. And I don't think I've read that book, so. It's a little dense, but it's, but it's, it's a good one. And it it really has a a bunch of the science in there. Um, You know, one of the other things that that we've been talking to is is finding the things that work for you as an individual. And um, I think one of my personal benefits to, to being more mindful is I'm better to assess my situation on a minute to minute, day to day basis. Like you said, what do I need at the moment that will make me more present or make me happier or make me better? And listen, it's, it's not all puppy dogs and rainbows every minute of the day. That's part of life. Um, but kind of understanding the situation, understanding how you can get out of it and move on to the next step that things are going to get better. I think are one of the real advantages. Uh, and I think the other part of, of recognizing that is there are lots of mindful mindfulness practices and you can tailor them to what you need. So um, my, my practice right now, the way it currently runs, but it's always evolving in the morning. I do brief yoga to kind of loosen up my body. And I actually do a guided meditation in the morning because I'm anxious before I go to the operating room and before I see patients. So I can't just sit there. If I just sit there in silence or my mind will go and I have, and it's basically ineffective time. So I need something guided in the morning. I try and do another mindfulness actually period or episode before I go to bed. And that one is a lot more silence and introspective and not guided. And that's kind of what I need before I go to bed. And it helps me kind of wind down and kind of let the day pass on. So there's lots of ways to do it. And and the last thing I'll say is, listen, when you go to the gym or you work out, you don't just do bicep curls. Right. If you, you work, you do lots of exercises, you work your body out in different ways to be stronger and more fit. So there's lots of ways to approach mindfulness to kind of get the benefits in different areas. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And it's about, um, you know, a, another thing that people will say is that, that it's just life's too busy. I, I don't think I can do it because it's too busy. Um, so the other part is how to practically work it in. You found a good routine. For me, the the more quiet one um, is when I walk home. I'm lucky enough to live pretty pretty close to work, and so it's when I when I walk home that's when I sort of um, uh, do my my kind of practice. Mornings mornings are harder for me. Um, I kind of want to just get at it and go. Also, it's like I got making lunches, getting all the stuff together, like. Like that is, it is the time where I just allow myself to like go through my checklist. Um, and so from, from that aspect, I do that. Um, the other time I really try to um, um, incorporate mindfulness is actually, I know myself, I also get, I get um, a lot of joy from being around other people, right? And from, I draw energy from being around other people. That's just a thing about me. And I, and I know that. So um, when, when I see patients, like I, I try to really be present and listen and I end up being, I feeling a lot less um, rushed and you'd be amazed how just a couple questions don't take long, just a couple minutes. And you can learn a lot about somebody and um, it's, it's fun. It makes the experience like more happy, more joyful And so the question I use in general when I talk to patients um, 
is I ask them, oh, like, so what are you into? Like, what really brings you joy? I learned it from our integrative medicine uh, doctors. And I heard them asking that one time. I'm like, that's kind of a funny question. What do people say to that? Um, turns out they say all kinds of stuff. And, and you actually learn uh, a couple really interesting things about the person you're taking care of. And, and for me, that is one way I try to be um, present and grateful. And you end up um, not having those thoughts running through your head. Like I got 30 minutes and I got a document and I got to go to the next one. And this person's paging me. And then all this is happening. And this other, like the nurse is coming to me, like some disaster is going on. Um, it takes a lot of that out and it makes my um, clinic day or, um, uh, you know, half clinic day, just a lot more enjoyable and less stressful. Yeah, that adds a great piece of advice. I I wrote that one down, put big circles and stars over that. What are you into? I'm going to try that one in clinic. I often, um, I mean, listen, we see a lot of patients and sometimes it's follow-up and it's like, great, your cancer's gone. You're doing great, right? That honestly, that conversation could take 15 seconds, but that's not why that patient came. I mean, yes, they came to get the news, but they came to see you and talk about life. And so, you know, I always try and ask about children, ask about work, ask about life, because that really is that connection that, that brings people to it and draws you into the presence of being in that moment with them, sharing that moment of the joy of the success of cancer being gone, or listen, God forbid it's cancer's back. You know, we have to deal with this. It also makes you more present and, and really connect with those people. And I think it's one of the, the joys of medicine is connecting with people as you, as you bring up. Agree. <laughs> um, yeah, one of the criticisms I get of, of this podcast and these conversations and what people really struggle with is that one question you brought up, how do you find time for this? And I just want to make it clear when I'm doing mindfulness, sometimes this is five minutes. I mean, at most, maybe 10 or 15. I'm not talking about hours in a day. My life wouldn't function. So just kind of, you know, put in perspective, give people just a little understanding. How can you get started? How do you prioritize these things? What's the time commitment um, so people can understand? Yeah, I think it's, um, it is a minutes. It's measured in minutes, really. And so, again, it's sort of looking at your schedule in life and saying, okay, when can I do something at the same time every day? Um, it's the same way of trying to figure out how do you work in exercise or any of the other things that you want to kind of build a habit for. And so uh, start with a small ask of yourself. And once you get a win um, and you feel better, it will build on itself. And then you can add in more minutes where it seems reasonable. This is not hours. Um, I don't do an hour yoga every morning before there's no way I couldn't wake up early enough. Um, it's not, not, not practical, right? Like to, and, and I don't do that and sit there being mindful. Um, it's like working it into my walk home. Um, sometimes I'll listen to a guided inventory. Sometimes I'll just, you know, do my thing as I'm walking. Um, and it, it is about building it into, I will be um, fully present for one interaction this X interaction a day and not be distracted by something else. Um, I will make sure that um, one time during the day, if 
something goes through my head that is more of a negative thought, I will take the two seconds to think about where that came from and try to instead come up with something positive. So it's, it's like those small wins measured in minutes, not hours, because no one has hours. Yeah, I hear you. And, and one of the other things I always like to say is, you know, we have a, a foundation. Um, you've heard of Maslow's hierarchy of, of uh, principles, right? Where we kind of have these base needs or a hierarchy of needs. So we have these base needs. And, and as we climb up the pyramid or the ladder, it gets to self-actualization. At the base of our pyramid as, as surgeons and physicians is really our, our well-being. And that's physical health. It's mental health. It's all of those things. And everything above that becomes easier. You'll find yourself unlocking more time and more abilities to tackle your clinical practice, your interactions with colleagues and patients, your time in the operating room. It all gets easier to manage if you've got a good foundation. And it's not a major investment. It's a little bit of time here and there can pay huge dividends. Yeah, I completely agree with that. It's just a little, little bit. Yeah. There's a, um, another author named Chris Bailey. Um, and he has, a, an, I think it's just an audio book called how to train your mind, but he basically, he's from a business background and he quantifies it and he says one minute of mindfulness will actually buy you nine minutes of efficiency throughout your day. And so you can imagine with just five, if you use that calculation, five minutes of mindfulness, 45 minutes of extra time, you could get a lot done in 45 minutes if you had that extra time in your day. So um, start small and you know that, that's the advice I give people too. It's not a huge investment. Uh, it, building the routine is a little bit challenge, more challenging. Correct. You got you to gotta see what works. What works for you or me will not work for right. someone else. And you know the really annoying thing is, is what worked for you 10 years ago may not work for you kind of now. So um, you got to sort of reassess every few years because your time in life changes because things just change. That's like the one guarantee in life, except for birth and death. (laughs) It's going to change, which I just like. I hate change, (laughs) but you know, I learned to be okay with it. (laughs) Absolutely. Um, so we, we're both pretty into yoga, um, or, or at least have it part of a kind of our normal routine. Um, tell people about your routine and, and kind of where you started with yoga practice and the benefits you see now as a surgeon. So for me, it was, um, brought in, um, more from, from dance for flexibility, right. Is something to kind of, um, do to keep strength and flexibility. So it was more because my dance teacher made us do it um, because she had a very strict kind of whole thing. And that's how, you know, her goal was that we, we won every competition. That was the, the undefeated title was her kind of um, thing. And so from that, I learned a lot of yoga and I was like, Oh, that's actually nice. Something I can do. Um, I had a few knee injuries one was actually in a performance and one was possibly maybe wrestling another one of our colleagues in urology at a bar in Chicago in a giant sumo suit (laughs) so that's where the other that's where the other ACL went down um and and after those um kind of building back strength and flexibility yoga was something I could do um because running was hard as was other things until I got strength back. Um, so that's how it kind of really 
got me into a, a practice. And it's the other part of that is it's something that it seems like you can do for a very long period of time, kind of like tennis, swimming, um, those types of activities. There's no way I can be on point shoes for now. I, I, I don't think, I don't know if it'd be even possible if I put them on, if I could continue to do those kinds of activities as I get older, um, cause you change and what you can do changes. Um, and so that's how I kind of got into it. And then I realized, oh, this is great. It is flexibility, strength. It's challenging enough, but it is a time where I can um, make double use of it and and um, practice some mindfulness and be very present and focused and breathe and all those other things that people say are good for you. And then as you start doing it more and you realize, ah, I actually feel great when, when I do this. Um, like I was saying, it's like a self-fulfilling prophecy. You end up figuring out how, a way to make it work. So uh, I would say I aim for, for me, what's reasonable is two to three times a week. And I, and, and I don't like set goals of like, I need to do it for an hour. I'll usually pick like a goal of like 20 minutes. Um, and that, keeps me happy. It seems to be enough every now and then I'll do something longer, crazier, go to a class. Um, but most of the time, particularly now with all these videos, just you're able to like access it almost anywhere. And so, um, that's sort of, that's how that's kind of built in. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, another similarity, Seema, that you didn't know we shared, uh, I was also injured in a sumo suit wrestling, uh, a friend, I chipped a tooth uh, a while ago. And uh, yeah, so th- there's another thing we have in common that we didn't know about. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I share a very similar story with, with yoga. Um, I started it for flexibility and I got, I actually really enjoyed it uh, in medical school. And I got away from it through residency and other stuff. And then COVID hit and I had a lot of spare time on my hands. I said, what's one good thing I could do for myself? Well, I need to improve my flexibility. Let me start doing yoga. And then everybody starts for a similar reason, right? It's flexibility. And then you get all the other benefits. And like you said, it's strength, particularly core strength, which is huge for surgeons, I think. Um, The other thing I find really helps is body awareness, right? I know it's helped me identify when I'm, ergonomically not sound in the operating room when I'm pulling on something and something's starting to hurt. And I go, and I go, Oh, if I keep doing this for the next two hours, this is really going to be a problem tomorrow. Um, yeah. And, and like you said, and then comes all the mindfulness aspects of it, the, the ability to be present, the ability to be focused, the ability to work on breathing was huge for me. I, I ran for years and I was an awful breather. I always felt like it held me back running. And it finally, I honestly, maybe in the last year, I feel like I've learned how to breathe properly through exercise. And it was yoga that taught me that even though I've been lifting weights and running for the past 20 plus years of my life, I mean, this is, this is what actually got me over the, the hump of, of doing that properly. So I think there are tremendous benefits to yoga. Is it for everybody? No, I think we would all admit that, but it does check off a lot of the boxes of what we want in the operating room, I think from a physical well-being standpoint. Yeah, I I agree. It's also something you can do with, um, it can be like social. So Kirsten and I used to go to the place like down the street from the hospital. Um, whenever, you know, we, we get bent out of shape because anesthesia would unnecessarily cancel our cases at the same time. And we're like, (laughs) we 
you'd be sitting there stewing <laughs> and we'd say, okay, <laughs> let's go, let's go do something positive and, you know, kind of go down the street. We, we've started the thing at, um, at meetings about trying to find something that's maybe not um, late night, which is also super fun in terms of um, socializing, forming connections and bonds and, and networking. It lets us do something like a different time of the day and, um, and like a shared activity, something fun to do, a new experience. Um, and so there's a, a lot of good things that, that, um, that, kind of surround yoga, but you're right. It's not for everyone. Um, and so there's definitely like, you know, like a lot of my friends too are like, I don't know, it's not for me. I'm like, Oh, that's okay. <laughs> it doesn't have to be for you. Sure. Although I'll tell you, I got my dad to come to a yoga class. My dad's almost 70 years old, never done yoga in his life. And he was in town visiting and we we're going to go out to dinner. I said, listen, Tuesday nights, I usually go to yoga. I totally understand if you're not interested, I'll cancel and we'll just, we'll go out to eat. And he says, you know what? I've always wanted to try it. I would love to do it with you. And you know what? He had a great time and the instructors loved it. You know, people in the class loved it. It was somebody new, somebody who was really trying. And honestly, I give him a lot of credit. He did awesome. Um, he did, he did rock star twice, you know, twice. He kind of flipped go. his dog over. So <laughs> pretty impressive. So uh, he's very proud of, uh, of, proud of that. And it was a good experience. Yeah. I do offer the residents all the time to come. Nobody's taken me up on it yet. I always say I will I will take you to your first yoga class if you want to try it. And then after that you gotta pay for it yourself. But um we'll eventually I'll get somebody to sign on. You'll get a taker. Yeah. <laughs> You'll get a taker. Yeah. Well, good. So this has been an awesome conversation, Seema. I, I always like to give people the opportunity to, to bring up things they may want to talk about, cover things we haven't covered that seem important to to them and, and their approach to, you know, either mindfulness or surgery or whatever it is you want to talk about. I think my um, my final kind of point is that you get one life and you get to choose how to live it. You can choose to live it joyfully or you can choose not to. And and so, um, you know, I think we were we've been talking about that we're coming into the age where friends are getting sick. And people are sort of facing a lot of life challenges and their kind of own mortality. Right. And, and it, it reminds you how precious your time is. So you should spend it well <laughs> doing the things you love and um, um, trying to create meaningful connections and memories. I love that message. I think it's incredibly important and powerful for, for people to hear that. And just to kind of summarize some of the really other amazing things you said today, uh, I think it's important for everybody to remember, nobody starts out being mindful, right? We, we all, none of us are born with a mindfulness practice. It's not something we're taught as, as toddlers or infants. So uh, take your time, explore this, realize that there are things that you likely do well already and kind of being a little more thoughtful and purposeful with a mindfulness practice will help you kind of engage those things and, and may help you get a little bit more uh, kind of strength out of your own mindfulness practice. You said the OR is one of the greatest places for mindfulness. And I agree with you completely, right? You can be fully present. You can push everything else away and focus wholly on that patient. You can focus wholly on that resident if that's what you're teaching and working on. And, and it really gives everybody 
in that room, a joint goal of, and a joint outcome. And I think that's an incredibly powerful statement. We talked a lot about being an individual and recognizing that you're going to have different strengths and weaknesses than others. And you can craft your mindfulness practice to that. Uh, We talked about using different types of mindfulness, depending on what mood you're in or how you're feeling that day or, 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 you know, what you may need to be in a better state of mind. And lastly, I want to give you kudos for running a trial on patients and exploring this in a scientific way uh, and bringing this to cancer care and bringing this to cancer patients, because, you know, obviously we're believers, but I think there are a lot of people out there who can, who can benefit from this. And then lastly, um, um, we have one life, choose how to live it. Incredibly important message for everyone to hear. So I want to thank you so much, Seema. It's always a pleasure talking to you. I look forward to seeing you in person. Uh, Zoom calls are okay, but in person is better. And uh, that'll be shortly, hopefully, at uh, the upcoming AUA meeting. Thanks so much for having me. And yes, um, it will be at AUA. (laughs) See you, Seema. Have a great day. All right. You take care. 